2: Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo-Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we're pleased to we have with us Professor Michael N- N- Nyberg. Professor Nyberg is professor at the United States Army War College, and today we're discussing his newest book, When France Fell, The Vichy Crisis and the Fate of the Anglo-American Alliance, published by Harvard University Press. Harvard University Press. Welcome, Professor.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
2: Professor, what is the thesis of your book?
0: Well, the, the book really is, uh, aims to have three, I think, driving theses. One is to examine the way one argues that it is the fall of France that first begins to get the United States thinking seriously about the Second World War and how the United States should respond to it. The second looks at the way that Vichy and America's relationship to it really is driving a lot of American behavior in the early stages of the war. And the third thesis really looks at the way the United States embraced, welcomed, recognized Vichy uh, and in so doing isolated Charles de Gaulle setting up uh, significant problems with America's growing alliance with Great Britain.
2: How does your book differ from that of the semi-official history William written by the uh, famous diplomatic historian William Langer?
0: Yeah, Langer's book is really trying to justify what American policy uh, was. He's really trying to argue that the United States sort of was in a a very bad position and we grabbed for the only piece of driftwood that was out there. But uh, that argument to me doesn't really hold water. Uh, The United States, in fact, saw a lot that it liked in Vichy, France, at least originally in 1940 and 41. Uh, And the United States uh, behavior towards Vichy was quite different than the way that Langer depicts it. Langer's book is written to justify the policy the United States pursued during the war. So I, I think you have to treat Longer's book almost as a memoir or a primary source because he was so deeply involved in all of this. Uh, my book is an attempt to, to take a, a, a higher approach, leaven it out with the, uh, the other American sources, British sources, French sources, and try to get a deeper, deeper look at the problem.
2: How much de facto did the United States rely upon French military prowess prior to May 1940? in terms of its strategic thinking.
0: Yeah, I don't think many Americans thought about it in these terms, but as long as the French army was there and as long as the Royal Navy was there and the French Navy as well, as long as those things continued to be true, then the United States could take its own security for granted. It could become what political scientists call a free rider, using the security of other states to guarantee its own security. And it could assume that it would then control the date and timing of American entry into this war as it had in the first world war. So when France fell, all of those assumptions just collapsed overnight and everything that American planning had been based upon just simply disappeared and it created this this great moment of panic inside American strategic circles in 1940.
2: Why did FDR send undersecretary of state Sumner Wells on a peace mission to Europe in the spring of 1940?
0: Well, I think the United States was trying to figure out what this new world order was going to look like and what it was going to mean for American security. There had just been so little thinking about what was going on and how it would impact the United States that any kind of information would be would be incredibly valuable. As North Africa became of interest to Americans, we really had nobody in, in the American diplomatic or intel systems that knew North Africa, that spoke the languages, that knew the players. So it really was a kind of start from scratch. And I think that Uh, is indicated by the way that the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner to the CIA, gets going. It's very informal. It's very, um, you know, its nickname is Oh So Social because it's a bunch of wealthy Ivy League people trying to figure out what's going on between martinis. So Wells is is an intelligent, thoughtful, capable diplomat. He's one of the people that's going to try to help figure this out for us.
2: How did FDR initially react to the fall of France
0: well, once he got over the shock of the fall of France, uh, and and that took some time, he really began by by pushing for spending bills, by pushing for the Burke-Wadsworth Act, which introduced conscription, uh, by starting to really change the dynamic, because by that point, the American view towards the war changes. So the fall of France eliminates much of what's left of the isolationist kind of uh, sentiment in the United States. FDR removed his Secretary of Army and Navy and replaced them, Secretary of War and Navy, excuse me, and replace them with two new people, uh, both of whom were Republicans, to try to build an American version of a coalition cabinet. Uh, So he takes a much more aggressive, much more offensive view, because he's now aware that the timing of the war, as I said, the U.S. no longer controls.
2: How did American officials like um, Robert Murphy of the State Department react to the emergence of the Vichy regime?
0: Well, I think Murphy is one of the key voices, at least early on, telling FDR that there might be a way in which we can work with Vichy. There might be a way in which some of their goals, their anti-communist goals, uh, their, their uh, anti-Charles de Gaulle goals, that those things overlap with the United States. And Murphy's really the only voice in the United States system that really does understand at least some of the players. So Murphy's support for a positive relationship with Vichy is very, very important in those early couple of months.
2: How and why did the initial American view of the Vichy regime differ from that of the UK? The British right
0: away saw something in Charles de Gaulle that they admired. De Gaulle came out as a, a firm anti-Vichy voice. De Gaulle, of course, came to England, spoke on the BBC, gave that wonderful uh, speech on June 18th in which he, he he really did predict what was going to happen, that France had lost a battle, that France had not lost a war, that this was a world war that sooner or later uh, the, the world was going to join France in this effort to remove Germany and destroy Nazi Germany. Um, so they they very much liked Charles de Gaulle. The Americans, on the other hand, hated de Gaulle. Uh, they didn't really understand what it was he was trying to do. Uh, they didn't like the fact that de Gaulle claimed to be leading France with no, no authority behind him at all. So the, the the American papers on de Gaulle really up until 1944 are, are kind of shockingly anti-Charles de Gaulle. They accuse him of of every crime under the sun. So that sets the United States and Britain off on completely different directions in regards to policy towards France.
2: In the book, you cite four key reasons that American officials gave for their policy of cooperation with the Vichy. What were they? Uh, Well, uh,
0: the the most important, I mean, is that the United States argued that, that keeping a door open to communication with Vichy was critical for America's own security. Uh, That meant that the United States wanted to know what Vichy France was going to do with its empire, which included Dakar Senegal, it included Martinique in the Caribbean, what France would do with its fleet, uh, those kinds of things. So the argument was, as long as we had an open relationship, as long as we were talking to them, we would have some influence over Vichy's behavior. There's also an argument that we could use our relationship with Vichy as a kind of backdoor communication with the British. The British had a very strange relationship with Vichy France. Uh, attacking the French fleet at Merzel kabir in 1940. But Churchill never really gave up on the hope that, that Vichy would become eventually an, an American and British ally. So the argument was that, that we could use that as a kind of backdoor for, for communications between the British and the French. I argue in the book that none of these things really worked. Uh, the British didn't use the United States as their back channel to Vichy. And no matter what the United States did, uh, we had very little influence over the behavior of Vichy officials.
2: Why initially did American officials like Secretary of State Hull and United States Ambassador to Vichy Admiral Leahy trust Maréchal Petain? Well, Petain
0: is a very familiar figure in the United States. Um, there's even a the, the, um, there's a restaurant in New Orleans that even had a dish named after him. He was so popular in the United States between the wars. He was the French commander of, of the French Army at the end of World War One. He and John Pershing were, were close friends. He was a very well-known, very popular figure inside the United States. So when the Americans thought about Vichy, they thought about it very much in terms of the kind of cult of personality that was built around Peyton. And as long as they could convince themselves that Peyton was running the show, they had some sense of optimism. Leahy kind of goes back and forth on this. Sometimes he saw Peyton as a mere figurehead, and an aging one at that, one that was falling asleep in meetings and clearly not at the, at the top of his game. But as long as Pétain was the leader of Vichy, uh, really until I think late 1942 and maybe even beyond, Leahy held to the belief that Pétain was someone that the United States could work with.
2: Why did American officials decide to send food shipments to French North Africa in early 1941, even though the British were opposed to it? Yeah, this is another one of those carrot and stick kind of arguments. The United States knew that
0: um, food was the biggest concern for Vichy officials that most of the food in Southern France and in North Africa found its way one way or the other into German hands. So the Americans hoped to use food as a carrot to kind of begin to lure Vichy over a little bit more to the United States side. Uh, the British were convinced that that food would end up in German hands somehow so that the United States would be materially aiding the German army if it if it began this kind of food and even some oil shipments into North Africa. So right from the start, there's a, there's a real controversy between the United States and Britain about whether aid to Vichy is going to help pursue what the Allies want to do or whether all you're really doing is indirectly assisting the Nazis.
2: Why did American officials not break ties with Vichy in the aftermath of the so-called Paris Protocol between Admiral Darlan and Hitler?
0: Yeah, these are these are agreements signed between Vichy and uh, the Germans that go far beyond um, mere kind of passive cooperation. These are agreements that Darlan signs to uh, really make Vichy France an active and complicit agent in the German war effort. Uh, the two reasons are number one that um, the, the protocols never really do go into effect; that is, they're signed but they're not they're not ever actually implemented. Uh, and the other, I think, is that the Americans were were at that point. Feeling themselves stuck, that there wasn't a, a viable alternative policy at that point. But it is things like the Paris Protocols that make people like Ambassador Leahy and that make Sumner Wells, whom he mentioned earlier, realize that everything the United States had done in regards to Vichy had just been a manifest failure.
2: How did American officials respond to the Japanese occupation of parts of French Indochina in the early summer of nineteen forty one?
0: Yeah, this is what I mean when I say that, you know, as I was doing the research, you sort of find out that everything ties back to Vichy or almost everything ties back to Vichy in one way or another. Uh, It is the Japanese occupation of Indochina, which was then a French Vichy controlled uh, empire, part of the empire uh, that drove the United States to do the final acts of the the oil embargo and and all of the, the pressure that they were trying to put onto Japan. But the reaction in the American press and in the American diplomatic corps is fascinating. They sort of don't blame the Japanese that, you know, here is a here's an opportunity for Japan to to get a piece of territory at very low cost. What they are is appalled by the Vichy officials in Indochina who simply roll over, who simply don't do anything to stop it. So it's another indication to them of Vichy's unwillingness to to do anything to help the allies at all and an indication that Vichy is just a broken reed on which to try to build a wartime policy.
2: Why did Secretary of State Hull react so forcefully One is uh, actually tempted to say hysterically to the Gaullist occupation of two tiny French islands off of the coast of Canada.
0: Yeah, those islands are St. Pierre and Miquelon. They're off the coast of Newfoundland. And um, when de Gaulle occupied them, Hull wanted to create this kind of U.S.-Canadian force to push them out because, in his view, they had no legal right to be there. This is one of the hardest episodes to understand, I think. Churchill couldn't understand why Hull reacted the way that he did. De Gaulle certainly didn't understand it. FDR certainly didn't understand it. Uh, I think what Hull was trying to do is hold to this Vichy policy of his. Uh, and if De Gaulle occupies those two islands, if the Free French take over those two islands unopposed, it really does threaten the policy that he's putting in place. I think he was also very angry at the general principle that FDR stood up uh, with De Gaulle and with Churchill rather than with his own Secretary of State. So Hall actually drafted a letter of resignation, though he never gave it to the President. But everybody that was close to this incident just couldn't believe uh, how thin-skinned Hall was on this issue uh, when having the Free French take over those two islands was a notably good thing for the Allied war effort.
2: How did Vichy respond to the American entrance into the war December 1941?
0: It's a complicated story. And this is, again, the kind of murkiness of Vichy. Um, Some senior Vichy officials tried to tell the American officials that that that, that didn't need to change anything. Pearl Harbor didn't need to change anything, that the basic relationship between France and the United States could remain the same. Uh, Others who were a little smarter could quickly begin to figure out that sooner or later, Pearl Harbor was going to mean that the United States would get involved not just in the Asian War, but in the European War. And it didn't take a great genius of a strategist to look at a map and figure out the North Africa was one place potentially where the Americans might decide to start their war. So it opens up a, a wide range of possibilities. But again, the main problem for American officials like Robert Murphy, like some of the spies that go into North Africa early on, like Leahy in, in Vichy itself, it's just very, very hard to read what these Vichy officials are going to do because they're stuck between their, their desire to see France liberated and their fear of what the Germans could still do to them, of course, because the Germans still occupied Paris and Lyon and most of the central uh, and northern French cities, and they also had still tens of thousands of French prisoners of war back in POW camps. So it's a very, very odd position that Vichy is in.
2: How did the American State Department react to the return to power of Pierre Laval in May of 1942?
0: Yeah, it's kind of fun going through doing the research uh, to see the ways that American officials describe Laval, a man that virtually everybody just loathed and detested, a a really nasty, unpleasant guy. Um, When Laval came back into power, he did so with German support. Uh, That's the moment when Leahy and Vichy cabled back to Washington and said, look, if, if, if Laval is coming back into power, it means that Pétain is not the strong force we thought he was. This means the Germans really are calling the shots. And this means that Vichy is not the kind of neutral state keeper of French traditions that we thought it was. It is instead a kind of wholly owned subsidiary of, of the German government. So that, that's really the moment when the American press, the American people, and most members of the American government realized that the Vichy policy had just utterly failed.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: regard General Giraud as a potential alternative to both de Gaulle and Vichy. Yeah, Giraud is this figure that kind of drops out of the sky for the Americans. I mean, almost literally. He's a a general
0: uh, who's captured in 1940. He then escapes from this prison in Dresden. He makes his way to Vichy. He meets with Laval and Pétain. He realizes Vichy is just this, this German satellite. That's all it is. Escapes again, gets out of Vichy, literally with the Gestapo chasing him gets to London and he just looks to the Americans like this shining star. He looks the part. He looks like a soldier. He, he behaves like a soldier. He walks like a soldier. He's not Vichy. He's not Charles de Gaulle. He's not part of the corrupt uh, Third Republic government that had run France before World War Two. He very much looks the part. So it's easy for me to see how people like Murphy and, and Leahy and others would have looked at Giro and said, if we can just get this guy – to do the kinds of things we need him to do. If he can play the role we need him to play, he's the
2: perfect guy for us. And the British, I take it, did not react in that way at all?
0: No, the British knew full well that Giraud looked the part, but uh, Giraud had no political skills whatsoever. Uh, They knew that he and de Gaulle hated one another, and they had already placed their bets on de Gaulle. Uh, And they figured that as soon as push came to shove, uh, the Americans would see that Giraud was, as one Frenchman described him, Nothing more than a cold artichoke, rotten, but as you peel the layers back, you, you reach the rotten core. So this was a guy that uh, looked very good on camera, um, talked to the media reasonably well. But in terms of thinking strategically, uh, Giraud was not the guy. And Giraud had, Giraud's vision for the war is very different from what the British and the French wanted to do. Uh, he had a very different plan of liberating France first and then going to North Africa. So there was simply no way that that Giraud was going to be that guy on the military level, and Giraud was unwilling to play the part of a kind of political figurehead. He wanted full control inside any place that was uh, French territory. He wanted to be over Eisenhower in the torch operation, uh, and there was just no way that the Americans and British could give him what he wanted.
2: How would you characterize, in terms of quality and effectiveness, the intelligence network that Robert Murphy set up in North Africa?
0: Um, you know, it's amateurish. It's uh, They're not professional spies, for the most part, with one or two exceptions. Uh, they're people who had been – one guy was a jewelry salesman. One guy had been running the Coca-Cola distri- distribution system in Marseille. Um, they're not professionals, uh, and the information they bring back is largely the things that they can observe, the number of Vichy troops, the number of ships coming in and out. What they can't observe is what the Vichy officials themselves are thinking – and what they're likely to do once the shooting starts in North Africa. So it's the start of something. Uh, they do produce some very valuable intelligence. They make some important contacts, including a man named Charles Mast, who is uh, one of the senior French generals in North Africa. But there's a lot that they don't know and a lot that they simply can't know. So when the intelligence comes back to Eisenhower's headquarters, Eisenhower is sort of trying to figure out what this intelligence picture is telling him, and it doesn't add a whole heck
2: of a lot of clarity. And how um, familiar was Vichy with this intelligence network? Do they know about it pretty much? You know, it's hard to know that. I did find some Vichy intelligence files in Paris, and they had a pretty good picture of what the
0: United States was up to. Uh, They misjudged where exactly and when exactly Operation Torch would begin, but they certainly had it as one of the possibilities of what the United States might do. Uh, They had a reasonably good picture What's interesting is they began from assumptions that were faulty assumptions, too. They began from the assumption that the United States would go Pacific first. They began from the assumption that uh, the United States would not have sufficient shipping to do anything on the size of of torch. So they began from some assumptions that uh, did not hold up to to, to scrutiny too well because they misjudged what the Americans were about to do. But some of the the harder intelligence, some of the more specific intelligence, actually did a reasonably good job of – of building up a, a facsimile of what the American order of battle might look like and what the United States might do once it, once it got to North Africa.
2: How did Vichy respond to the torch landings in North Africa in, in November 1942? It's a complete mess. Uh, I, I talk about it quite a bit in the book. There are some French commanders who cooperate
0: with the Allies. There are some that order resistance to the Allies. Uh, there's one, one French general who records, like, in the morning, we, we, we are, we're fighting Germans. In the afternoon, we're fighting nobody. In the evening, we're fighting Germans again. This, you know, this is all mad. This is all just crazy stuff. So, uh, there's, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of, uh, um, just sheer chaos as they're trying to figure out who's issuing orders, whose orders do we obey? Uh, how, how important is the authority of Vichy? It, it's a very, very, very confused situation. So it's a mixed bag uh, until Darlan comes on the scene and, and finally begins to make some higher level strategic decisions. But Ernie Pyle, the great American war correspondent, was there and, and just describes it as an absolute mess. Nobody knows what's going on. Uh, nobody knows who's giving orders. Nobody knows whose orders are valid. It's a very confusing couple of days.
2: And I presume that it helps to explain why American officials... Eisenhower and Mark Clark decided to make a deal with Admiral Darlan. Yeah,
0: absolutely. They, they, they don't expect to find uh, Darlan there. They actually expected that Giraud would come from Gibraltar. Uh, Giraud refused to come from Gibraltar. Charles de Gaulle refused to come from London because both have been kept in the dark about this. Uh, nevertheless, there's Admiral Darlan, a guy that nobody particularly likes. Uh, most people want to throw him in jail, but he has that, that power and that ability to put a stop to all of this so it's a big gamble that the americans take and again longer kind of describes it as uh we were we were just cutting a deal with the devil for, for just a few minutes just to get this done but i think the evidence clearly suggests that that the united states and emerald darlon uh, fell into a pretty productive working relationship together and the united states could well have kept Darlon in power for a very long time uh, as one british official said once bought darlon stayed bought meaning that he went from being a German puppet to being an American
2: one. How did American domestic opinion and British opinion, official and unofficial, react to the deal with Darlan?
0: It's it's a horrible reaction. It's um, I think it's Edward R. Murrow who says, are we fighting the Nazis or are we sleeping with them? Uh, dealing with Darlan just makes a mockery of everything the United States claims to be fighting for. So Roosevelt tried the best he could. He used words like temporary five times in, in the in the talk that he gave about this he made sure that nobody called this a treaty or an accord or anything like that it was a temporary agreement only uh, everybody knows this is this is not going to go over well in the united states it's not going to go over well in london it's not going to go over well in france that that the united states is willing to take one of the most loathsome figures in europe at that point and cut kind a of deal with him not only to let him stay in power but to let the entire vichy system remain in power even as the United States is, is pursuing the, the Nazi armies and Italian armies across North Africa.
2: When and why did American officials detach themselves from backing General Giraud and very reluctantly agree to deal with uh, General de Gaulle?
0: Yeah, slowly but surely it dawns on them that Giraud is just not going to be the guy. He just he has no acumen for strategy at all. Uh, they bring him to the United States and try to give him some attention in the press, and he. He just says things like, well, you know, the Nazis did good things in Germany before the war. Um, he his strategic vision for the war is, is is not at all what the Americans want to do. Uh, Giro's an arrogant dude at times, too. He, he speaks in the third person. He rarely slows down to let the translators translate. And the Americans just kind of look at him like we just can't do this. And then there is an episode in Corsica in 1943, where Giraud is trying to, to create his own operation, his own intel network, his own planning to liberate the island of Corsica without letting the Americans and British know about it. Um, so they quickly realize Giraud's is not going to work, and, and de Gaulle falls into their laps, I think, almost by default and almost because de Gaulle gives them simply no choice.
2: Would it have made a difference to American policy if de Gaulle had been more diplomatic and emollient in his dealings with American officials,
0: well, it certainly wouldn't have hurt. Uh, De Gaulle had a gift for the offensive gesture. Um, he he did not fully trust what Roosevelt and, and Churchill were doing in regards to France. He wanted to be sure that France emerged from the war as a liberated country along the lines of Norway, and not an occupied country along the lines of Italy or Germany. Uh, I I think a more diplomatic Charles de Gaulle might have been able to smooth over some of the edges, but that wasn't the game that de Gaulle was playing. He was trying to make it perfectly clear to the Americans that French people would make decisions about the future of France, not Americans or or, or Brits. So I think it would have helped a little bit, but I think it would have been inconsistent with what de Gaulle was trying to do.
2: Am I correct in believing or assuming that you seem to argue that if the United States had recognized de Gaulle and his movement in the summer of 1940, as the British did, that this would have led to a different trajectory in post-war Anglo-French, I'm sorry, america Franco-American relations?
0: I think it probably would have. Um, It's just hard for me to see how the United States would have recognized de Gaulle that early. But I, I think you're right. I mean, de Gaulle, by the end, I just gave a talk at a conference in New Orleans, and somebody came up to me and said, now I understand. This was someone who had served in the american army in france uh in the 50s and in early 60s and he said now i understand why they were so angry at us you know that de gaulle was looking at american administrations that had backed vichy and then had backed Giraud and had looked for backed darlan and had looked for every other option but de gaulle and it was unreasonable for the united states then to assume that de gaulle would just do what the united states wanted it to do in the 50s and 60s uh so if that relationship had been more positive earlier on certainly that would have helped to smooth things over in the post-war period but there's there's almost no one in the American system willing to back De Gaulle really until 1944. Nobody in, in the political system, at any rate. Uh, there were politicians, there were journalists. I'm sorry, there were there were journalists, there were people in the American population more generally who were ready to back De Gaulle, but not inside the government.
2: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: I think I'd like people to just use the book to take a different look at the Second World War, to look at how difficult some of these choices were for American officials, that, that uh, especially dealing with the, the the novelty and the strangeness of France ended up impacting almost everything the United States did in the early years of the war. Everything from the first recognition of the Holocaust to uh, behavior in civil liberties on the home front, all of it ties back pretty directly back to Vichy. So I think you can use Vichy as a lens to see the Second World War in a different light.
2: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books and History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you.